Thanks, Mia. It is nice to see all of you and have people here this morning after last night. Hopefully you all enjoyed yourselves. I think most of, good chunk of you were there, so that's a good thing. It was a good turnout. It was a good event, and so we're glad to get to do that. And as Mia said, we'll be planning more things this fall, uh, so be on the lookout for that. Also, too, if you uh, want to still jump into the Blueprint class, we're going to do that tonight. Um, and next Sunday still, 5 p.m., uh, Anna and I are hosting that in West Homewood if you want to be a part of that. Even if you missed last week, if you can make tonight and next week, still come out to these last two. We'd love to have you. It's just a class and a way for you to get to know the church, uh, who we are, what we're doing, how we're structured. And uh, we just want to be able to have conversations and answer questions and things like that. So we're in Corinthians still. And this chapter and this passage that Mia just read for us should feel very familiar to the passage we read last week, if you were here. And that is in, because in some way Paul is returning back, and chapters 8, 9, and 10 have largely been surrounded and structured on this idea of what our personal freedoms are, uh, what our freedoms look like in uh, being followers of Jesus. And so we're coming back to uh, idol food, the, the debate that was alive and well in the church of Corinth. And so if you would recall with me if you were here last week, if not, I will give a very quick explainer of uh, just the context of what's going on here again. I won't go into all the details, but essentially the people in Corinth were, uh, their access to meat was largely centered around and uh, it was largely given by uh, temple worship. And so if you didn't want to eat the meat that was sacrificed in temples, you had a hard time having access to meat. And so especially if you were poor, the idea being that you wouldn't have been able to afford meat at a normal market. There are also in a city like Corinth probably weren't kosher markets, so Jewish people wouldn't have had access to meat that was clean for them. And so then there was this big debate in the freedom of the gospel. Was it okay for followers of Jesus to eat meat? Uh, that might or might not be sacrificed to idols. And so Paul essentially says, uh, you probably shouldn't do that in the temple. Like, you shouldn't, as a believer, go into the temple and be participating in that, in the rituals and the acts of idol worship. Uh, but if you buy your meat from the market, you know, don't ask, don't tell kind of situation here. Like, he's essentially saying in this passage, if you don't really want to... Uh, worry about it all that much, that's fine. It's okay. So he starts to really delve into the practicals of this conversation now. He's getting into, like, uh, at the beginning of chapter 8, he's talking about big picture. We're looking at the sovereignty of God, how he lives and how he reigns over all things, and that no idol really has any power over God, so he has no power over you, or she has no power over you. So it's okay to eat this meat but if you don't uh, want to offend a, a brother or a sister that may take offense to you eating that meat, then don't eat it. And then he continues and kind of like delves off into this one chapter uh, barrage, if you will, in chapter 9 of him talking about what it means that like you would have freedom in the gospel. Because that's what they're saying. These Corinthians are, are, are doubling down on their freedom. And so he's going to talk about rights, I guess would be a better way to put it. What rights do you have as a human being following Jesus? What are your rights as a believer? And Paul's going to say, these are my rights as an apostle. Am I not free? He starts chapter 9. 
Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Am I not the apostle to you, the church of Corinth? And so he begins to kind of lay out all of the things that he would have every right to do for him, and specifically with the church of Corinth, what he is talking about is that he would have the right to get paid by them. This was common practice for the Jewish church. He is laying out like your rabbis and even in the apostles and the disciples that then later on go on to establish churches. Those that were in full-time vocational ministry were paid by the churches. And he says, like, even the people that run the temple, like, do they not keep some of the meat to feed themselves? Because their work is the temple. And so what he's telling this church at Corinth, and we know that in other places Paul does uh, get paid by the churches that he helps establish. But for some reason, we don't really know exactly why, other than he says so that he can boast in just preaching the gospel. Paul chose to work uh, and to be out in the job market uh, Tent making is the, the career we think that he had. And he chose to have this job so that he could support himself in tent making. And so that then that way when he went to the church at Corinth, he could look at them and he could say, I took no money from you. I had every right to, but I didn't. I chose not to. I chose to support myself so that I could come to you and preach the gospel and the gospel alone. And you couldn't hold anything over my head. Why he did that in Corinth, we have good guesses and that's not what the sermon's about. But we would uh, be good to like stop and recognize this. That what he's acknowledging is that sometimes, as a believer, you have every right and freedom to do something, but yet, for the sake of the gospel, you might choose not to. And he wants to make clear, this is not for his own sake. It would be much better for him to take money. He doesn't need to not take money for him to better understand the gospel and to grow in discipleship. He's saying it's for the sake of another. And then he continues. He says, I have more freedoms. I'm free to do what I want. I've made myself a slave to everyone, even though I did not have to. He's using his freedom to lift other people up. He's using his freedom to establish that he is the one that is giving himself to the church of Corinth. And he's doing all of this He's doing it in a way that will make it clear that they then should do the same thing. Though you have freedoms, though you have rights, though you have every good ability and good faith and good conscience to do these certain things, does it lift up? Does it uh, honor those around you? Does it, is it a thing that is done in love? And so he keeps urging them to have self-discipline and focus He's calling them to say there, there has to be a reason why you do things. There has to be like intentionality behind what you do. And it's somewhat comforting to me because I feel like as a pastor or even just as a follower of Jesus, it's like you come back to again and again as you read and you study and you process. It's like this has been going on for 2,000 years. Like the, the following of Jesus is a simple thing in some ways. It's just being intentional, being mindful, being purposeful, thinking about things. Because we as human beings, I believe, are very prone to just sort of getting lost in what we want, what we desire, what's easiest for us, what's best for us in that moment. And hear me, because this is what Paul is saying, is that's not necessarily a bad thing. You're not at fault for doing what's easiest for you. 
But if you want to follow Jesus and you want to be a part of seeing the kingdom come, and if you want to invite others into that life with you, there's some intentionality that has to be at hand. And also there is some self-sacrifice, is what Paul's getting at. Through this whole thing, chapters 8, 9, and 10, if you would kind of like wrestle with it some, I think what he's getting at again and again is that like there's some gray area in this. We talk about this a lot at Mosaic, and I will confess that I think sometimes we probably, I, I will say this, and right, that's good uh, emotional health. I will use I statements and not we statements. I will own this. I have a tendency to live too much in the gray. I like it. I like ambiguity sometimes, like especially when it allows me to kind of dip my toes into some areas that maybe I shouldn't, you know, like, well, you know, it's okay. Because there's not a right, there's not a black and a white here. And if we know, if you were a night four of the church history class, we are products of the Enlightenment and post-modernity. And so therefore, we are people that want to say, are there really absolutes? Isn't the text uh, left up to the interpreter? And we, whether you choose to be or not, are a product of that education system and environment. And so you are naturally taught to kind of question everything. To be suspect of all things. Anything authoritative. And now culturally and societally, we've like jumped on that train full stop. Like we're just all in. That there would be anything authoritative, anything that seems absolute, anything that would limit someone, kind of push someone else away. Like we're very hesitant of that. And sometimes for good reason. I live in that world. So I really like these chapters. But we have to remember that as Paul is going through this, and just a few chapters before that, he is saying there are absolutes, okay? Before we go head into chapter 10 and I just like live in my ambiguity and my grayness that I love so much, we do have to understand that as a follower of Jesus and as a human being, there are things that are absolute. There are certain things that just are going to be beyond death and taxes, right? Like, there are just some things that are always going to happen, and there are absolute truths. And Paul will say, like, think back to the very start, or close to the start of this series. We talked about uh, sexual integrity. Paul is saying, like, no matter who you are, pagan, follower of Jesus, Jew, Greek, Gentile, doesn't matter. You really should not be having sex with your dad's wife. Like, that's just, that's an absolute there's no gray ambiguity there. Like, that's off limits, even to the pagans. No incest. It's not a good idea, okay? And so Paul is saying there are some things, there are ways in which we follow Jesus that are absolutes. I think for a lot of us in this space, again, I will say me here, I think I like the gray and the ambiguity of Christianity because I was raised in a culture that overemphasized the absolutes and made everything an absolute. And so in my response to that, I think I have naturally swung this way. What has been an important part of me maturing as a believer in Jesus is learning to try to find that middle ground of accepting some absolutes, though oftentimes they rub against me in a lot of ways. Kyle has talked about this in the Corinthians passage, that there are sometimes things beyond sexuality. There are moments and times where we as a follower of Jesus have to say, we know this is the way we need to live, even if like deep down it doesn't make sense to me. Like sometimes there are things like my per I, Jonathan Miller, want to say, yeah, that's totally fine. I think all of you should go to the lake or the beach every opportunity you get. Just do it. Have fun. Go. Enjoy yourselves. Have a good time. It's fun. Who doesn't love going and doing those things? 
I sometimes think over here, though, as a follower of Jesus, that sometimes you should probably say no to those things. They're not always going to be beneficial or helpful. There are moments and there are times. I want to say in this category over here, you know what? You're right. That person is really annoying. You don't have to be friends with them. Life's too short. Have fun. Only invite over the people that will kind of like uplift you and make your life better. I, Jonathan Miller, resonate with that. Because I live by the 2% rule oftentimes in my mind. In my sinful flesh, I'm like, there's only 2% of the world that's not really annoying. If you're a people person, you don't get what I'm talking about. There's a lot of you that I think internally are nodding, going, I know exactly what you're talking about. 98% of the world is just dumb and gets in my way, okay? You experience this. People can be frustrating. And I want to say, just enjoy the people that you want to enjoy. About it. But I know over here as a believer, as a Christian, that's not the way we get to live our lives. So this goes beyond just like the big things that we talk about. There's this way in which we are called to live our lives differently because we're believers. And the reality of it is then you realize in a lot of those decisions that you're just really kind of sinful and arrogant and selfish. And life is actually a lot better over here, which is like the upside down nature of the gospel. That as you begin to sacrifice these things, you realize that these ideals you have, these things you want, these things that you thought would be a better way of living that would bring you more joy, more peace, more abundance, whatever it might be, you begin to realize that actually uh, seizing every opportunity to live my life and to have fun and to have all these experiences in my 20s, that they're really empty and that at 30 you'll find yourself that you're just as frustrated, lost, and existential as you were when you set out to find yourself by traveling Europe every chance you got, okay? So these things and these ways in which we realize that there's an emptiness to what we think will bring fulfillment. There's an emptiness to just living your own life. And when you actually begin to sacrifice and you begin to like find rootedness and patience and peace, that there's something in that where like you begin to tap into something that you are unaware of. And I think in those spaces, the Lord begins to shape and move us. And so this is what I want to say. There are absolutes, there are things, but then there's really gray areas like this. And this is what Paul's getting at. You need to sometimes deny yourself in order to experience what God would have for you. There is an abundant life that is meant for you to enjoy, to find hope in, to find peace in, to find fulfillment in. And that means living in a different kind of way than what would maybe be natural for you, what would maybe be what you would essentially want to do. So he's making an argument of what do you have the right to do? And he's laying out his own pedigree. And since it's the Olympics, we'll quote... uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, because he's talking about running, and many of you have probably heard this. There were races. There was actually this biannual every two years. There was these games that were held in Corinth where they would come and compete. And what he's saying about these people is he's saying that they do not run aimlessly. He does not run aimlessly, but he fights like a boxer, or he does not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, he strikes blows to his own body And he makes his body a slave in the same way an athlete would. They set boundaries in place. They train. They say no to things in order that they might be able to celebrate in their successes and their glories. He's calling us as believers to see the same thing. That sometimes you have to do certain things and make certain sacrifices to experience something that the Lord would have for you on the other side. And it feels like denial. It feels 
like you're being a slave to something. And what he is saying is, yes, that is actually the intention. That you would be freed from so that you could be freed for service to the kingdom. Our freedom in Christ is freeing us to be something, to do something, to give ourselves to something in the way that Christ did. Now, that can be tricky. And so I appreciate that Paul has the foresight to see the trickiness of this, to see the difficulty of this. And so what he does is he lays out some really practical things. So what's this look like in Corinth? Well, it looks like if you go to a dinner party and he lays out this very practical situation that might happen. You might find yourself at this dinner party being offered meat at a pagan's house. Because the implication there is that you should be eating in homes that aren't just Christians. And you should be having people that aren't just Christians in your home. It's kind of the implied subtext of this. This is a practical outworking. You're going to find yourself in situations where you are hanging out with and doing things with people that do not think exactly like you do. So how then do you approach those situations? Do you pull out the Bible every chance you get to disagree with someone and say, look at this, this is what it says, I can't do that, you can't do that, I'm a Christian. No, he says. He says you enjoy the hospitality of the person hosting you. Even if you think that it maybe has been sacrificed to idols, again, sort of don't ask, don't tell mentality. If you don't know, what you don't know won't hurt you in this moment. It's not what he says in every moment. But in this situation, and in other situations, I'm sure that you're calling to mind, you could think of similar things. There's no reason for you to flex your righteous muscles in certain situations. Instead, just enjoy the presence and the company that you are with and find yourself gracious to those that have invited you over. And so what he's saying is in this moment, if you think maybe the meat has been sacrificed to idol, you're in a pagan home, don't worry about it. The Lord is bigger than this situation. The Lord is bigger than some meat sacrificed to an idol. But if you are there and someone brings attention to it, someone says, hey, did, I, I didn't think you ate meat sacrificed to idols. This was sacrificed to an idol. Not for your conscience, but for theirs and the witness that you would have towards them. He says it's then okay to abstain. If they bring attention to it or if a fellow believer says like, hey, I don't think we should do this. To, to sort of be in a relationship with them, to kind of go into the trenches with them. Even though you are fine with eating it, you say, okay. I, I, the most, I dogged on drinking last week and was like, we overuse this. But like, that's a really practical example, I think. If you were at a, a big party and you were with someone that's a new believer and they're like, hey, I don't, I don't think we should drink here. Instead of getting into a fight with that person, you go, okay. I, I hinted at this last week. Because you also need to learn, just as an adult, this isn't even as a Christian, like you can enjoy yourself at a wedding without drinking, okay? Like that's, you're allowed to have fun without alcohol. I think we need to say that more in our culture and our society. You, you all roll your eyes when you know that it's a dry reception. I do too. I kind of go, oh man. I thought they wanted people to dance and stay until midnight. Good luck with that one. Okay, so what we can say is like, no, it's okay. Like if that's the conviction of the family... There's no reason to have a fight about that if you're a young couple looking at marriage. There's no reason to like go to war with your family over having a, like a little bit of alcohol at the reception. You can just go, okay, we'll still have fun. So I think that's a kind of a practical example of this. And then you can still enjoy yourself. Bridal party, go out to I don't know where. I don't 
I'm not cool anymore, so I don't know where you would go out in Birmingham. I'd go to a brewery, I guess, but there's cooler places. What's, there's, anyways, we don't need to go there. Okay, so there are these practical ways. And what he's saying, and so I like that he lays out these like sort of uh, detailed things. And you see the heart of a pastor in this moment. In 1 Corinthians 10, you see Paul's pastoral heart. 1 Corinthians 8, he's philosophical, he's theological. Now he's pra- hey, practically speaking. What does this look like? Now, this morning and in this moment, I don't have uh, the ability to sort of go through uh, and discuss every practical situation that we think we might find ourselves in. I tried to hint at some. But what I do think we can do is in these moments that we can kind of grab a hold of some bigger ideas and parameters that would allow us to then, when we uh, encounter these practical situations, to take what Paul's advice to the Corinthians was and to apply it to our own lives and to our own moments. I love 1 Corinthians 10. It is one of the, like, I don't have life verses per se, but like this would be one of my like, ways that I filter a lot of things in my life through. This idea that not all things are necessarily beneficial. All things are fine, okay? All things are good, he's saying. All things belong to the Lord. Again, knowing that there are some things you are not supposed to do, so we're reading that within a context of like some absolutes here. But for the most part, what he's saying is we get way overworked and we start hand-wringing and we start getting too uh, involved in setting these parameters and these bounds. A lot of our practical discipleship theology here at Mosaic, if you want to call it that, uh, like how we understand what it means to practice the way of Jesus, to practice resurrection, is centered around these concepts and these ideas. There are a lot of things that we will sit in a conversation and say, like, well, of course you could do that. Hot button issues that, that we were taught, like, man, like there are things that I think back to my childhood and I, like, I carry a lot of guilt from these things. Like deep shame. And really thought that like my relationship with the Lord was ruined because of like things that I would do like both publicly and privately. Like there was just a lot of shame and guilt given to me because people were after behavior modification. I think what Paul's getting at is that we're not after behavior modification here. We're after life change. And so there are things that are not advisable for you to do. It's not a good idea. But you are not morally or ethically wrong in a grand human sense, okay? And we talk about this a lot. And I had somebody ask this question after one of our sermons in Corinthians. They're like, you said that like, like morally and ethically it's not wrong. But then you said this is what Christians should do. And I'm saying what I mean by that is like you are not a terrible human being if you make certain decisions, but if you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus, then there are like better decisions that you should make. So you, you could maybe begin to s- distinguish between Christian ethic and like kind of general more human ethic or natural ethics if you want to. We're getting into philosophical waters where the, like there's debates on this, like what is what, how does this balance itself out? Anyways, what we're saying, practically speaking, there are moments and places where of course you are free to act in certain ways. Of course, it's okay to do those things. But the better question is not, can I, or uh, is it okay? Will I, am I wrong for doing it? 
But the question we at Mosaic go back to again and again is asking the question when you approach one of these topics is who am I becoming by doing this? Who is this allowing me to become? Am I becoming more like Christ in this moment? Or am I becoming more like my fleshly self? Am I fanning into flame the influences of the world and culture that are telling me to do these things? Or am I growing and festering and fermenting the life of the kingdom in myself by making these decisions? A better way, or another way to say it, I think, is that Paul's getting at in chapter 10 is it is not about the what you do, but it is more about the how you do it a lot of times. And we miss that as Christians. In church, and pastors, myself included at times, have missed how to implement this because it is easier to see actionable results by telling people to change the way they do things in terms of like, yes, no, that's wrong, this is good, like to give tangible, big, kind of graspable, like uh, change. If I tell you to stop drinking and you stop drinking, I can see that change, right? But the hard issue, it's messy and it's complicated and it's slow. It's like watching trees grow versus grass, okay? And that's what we're after as followers of Jesus, is to be oaks of righteousness, not weeds of righteousness. Weeds grow and they wither when the sun comes out. Seasons change and, and it disappears. But trees, they're rooted, they're established. They're permanent in a lot of ways, like for our small minds. And that's what Paul wants the follower of Jesus to get at. What is rooting you? What is allowing you to take like deep into the soil and to establish yourself into the kingdom of God? Can you? Sure, of course you can. No one's going to tell you you're wrong. And this gets really tricky. It is friends, spouses, uh, parents, pastors. Like you start to ebb and flow in this idea of like, well, like, you're not wrong for making that decision, but like what I'm trying to get you to see is that there is a better way to do that. The ways and the means by which we accomplish our discipleship, our life with Christ, is the more important question than like exactly what we do, okay? Because there are so many things that we find ourselves in, wrestling with, obsessing over situations that we can't predict and when you allow love and the sacrifice and the sake of others to always be elevated then more times than not even if you didn't make the most perfect decision you made the better decision because we're going to find ourselves in situations all the time uh, like there's not a perfect answer because you're a broken sinful human being with your own mess and your own problems and the person you're dealing with is a broken, sinful, messy human being. And so there is not a perfect how you do it. This will make everything go together. Because the, the problem is, is that most of us want to live in the world of niceties and perfect solutions. We want everything to be buttoned up. We, we want everything to be perfectly starched and, and all together. And the appearance and the, assembly, the, the, like the way we see it. It gives this idea that everything is going to be perfect and good. And we make our Christianity and our discipleship about that. How do we accomplish the perfect and good life? And we even make that mistake of how we talk about it, the, how we talk about the resurrection life. 
But I constantly am trying to use the word abundant, joyful, peaceful life because the reality of it is, is it's never going to be perfect. In fact, it's oftentimes going to be very, very difficult as we follow Jesus. Jesus never promises ease, but he promises abundance. He promises joy. He promises a a steadiness in the midst of tumult and toil. He promises perseverance, that you will get to the other side. And most of all, he promises that nothing in this life will be wasted. He promises redemption. He promises hope. He promises that he will take the messed up and broken things of your life and he will weave it into a redemptive story. He will take the thing that you're most embarrassed by, the thing that you're most frustrated by, the thing that you're most hurt and wounded by, and he will not make it disappear and you need therapy and you need to process and you need to do the things that allow you to find healing and wholeness. But the Lord says, I will take that thing because nothing is too dark, broken, or lost for me and I will weave it into a story of goodness and of hope. When we live into the world of ways and means, we live into a slow process of following Jesus. We live into a a difficult time of following Jesus. And we give up the immediate results and the Amazon delivery of righteousness, okay? Because we're not just after behavioral change, but we're after life change. Because that's what Jesus wants for you and for me, is to grab a hold of us, and he wants our whole world to be turned right side up, to see the world anew, to live into a different reality. He wants there to be a traffic between heaven and us. He wants us to be able to be interwoven, and inter, like interweaved, woven, twined, there we go. He wants us to be intertwined with the divine and the human He wants heaven and earth to overlap and he wants to invade all of you are and all that you have and everywhere you go and to come in contact with. That does not happen quickly or overnight, but it comes by focusing on how we approach things, how we do things, how we live our lives. And if we live most of our lives focused on understanding like that question, Asking the question is, what am I becoming in doing this? Who are we becoming by partaking in these processes and these things? And am I becoming more like Christ in the decisions I make? The way I spend my money, the way I hang out with my friends, the way I choose to use my time, am I becoming more like the world or more like Christ? And it's not always a perfect dichotomy. It's probably more of a circle and you can kind of meander around, right? And go backwards, forwards, left, right. Some decisions are probably just indifferent. Some may be bad, some may be good in that process. But if, I think if the majority of the time we're asking that question, then I think the majority of the time we'll be moving in the right direction. And those absolute things usually will take care of themselves. Because if we're pursuing truth and we're seeking justice, and we're giving our lives over the Lord, I think those things will just naturally happen. If we do have to worry about the absolutes, they are there. And I need to do a better job in my own personal life and as a leader and as a pastor of remembering those things and holding on to them, not being afraid of them. 
pushing back on my own anxiety and the anxiety of our culture and society of kind of wanting everything to be comforting and kind and understanding that, hey, sometimes we have to go to hard places. Sometimes we have to do difficult things. Sometimes we have to beat our bodies into submission, to use Paul's words. Our minds into submission. But, you know, a lot of the times, what we're talking about is just learning to sacrifice, learning to love, learning to elevate the other above ourselves in a healthy way, and that's hard to do. But that's the journey and the joy of what we get to do. And we do it because Paul called us to do it. That's not the only reason. Paul called us to do it and to to make our lives like his that he laid out in chapter 9 because he has made his life like Christ. The one that sacrificed everything. The one that gave up all authority and power. The one that gave up the knowledge of eternity's past, present, and future to come and experience pain and suffering joy and sorrow in the world like we did. He gave up perfect place. He gave up perfect communion with the Father in order that we might experience communion with the Father. And here's the thing that I'm convinced of, is I think Jesus had a really good time on earth. I mean, he must have had a good enough time that the Pharisees wanted to accuse him of being a drunkard and a glutton. Like he had fun, he enjoyed himself. In that self-sacrifice, in that giving up of everything, he, I think even he, fully man and fully human, found joy in the world. Found abundance as he gave up all. And so as he did that for us, Paul says, I imitate him, so imitate me. And I think we can together with one another say we collectively are going to do this. We are going to attempt to imitate Christ. And in so doing, we can invite others to do things as we do them. As we imitate Christ, it's okay to look at a brother or a sister and to say, imitate me. Like, because I have found that this works. I found that there is good in this. And we lay aside our fear of being judgmental. And we lay aside our fear of offending people and pushing them away. And we say, look, as we do this, this really works. Because if it's not, then I think we've missed the gospel. Because I think that the gospel should make an impact in our lives. My life has changed because of following Jesus. So I would be a fool to not look at you and to say, as I have done these things, my life has gotten better. So I want you to experience this. So do these things with me. Follow Jesus with reckless abandon, sacrifice, give things up, reorient what you understand as success, reorient what you understand as happiness in light of the kingdom and the gospel. And in so doing, your life will be enriched beyond measure. I can attest to that. Life has been really hard in the last 10 years for multiple different reasons, but it's been really, really good. It's not gone the way that I thought it would. It doesn't go perfectly. There are still moments where I'm like, it would be way easier to not care about this stuff. But I don't think it would be better. And that is the call that I think Paul and Corinthians in this little section is giving us, is that it is worth giving everything over to the Lord. Changing the way and the means by which you live in order that you might experience the fruit of the kingdom and the abundance of the resurrection life. As the band comes up, we celebrate communion every Sunday as a representation of this sacrifice 
and gift of Jesus to us. What we receive when we receive the bread and the cup is a reminder of Christ's sacrifice for us, his body broken in order that we might be fulfilled and have the sustenance to prevail through life. We're reminded of the blood that has been poured out and sacrificed in order that our brokenness and our sins may be forgiven and covered up. We're reminded that the life and life abundant is available to us through Jesus Christ. And in the taking and in the receiving, in the mystery of it all, we are changed and we are formed in order that we might then go and be sacrifice, love, kindness to others. In this moment, we are encountered by the presence of Jesus and we are changed by it because you cannot encounter that presence and not change. And so I invite you to come and to take a piece of the bread and the cup to hold on to those elements. If you are gluten-free, we always forget to say this, but we do have crackers over here for the gluten-free folks on this side if you want to come and, and partake in that way as well. But take the bread, the cup, hold on to those elements, and I'll come back and I'll lead in the taking as we take of one body and one blood. Amen.